Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week we watched the 1965 drama A Patch of Blue, directed by Guy Green. Released in the midst of the civil rights movement, this film stars Sidney Poitier as a black man who befriends a blind white girl from an abusive family. The film earned five Oscar nominations, including one win for Shelley Winters, who plays the girl's abusive mother. So this is a Patreon request from Asante, so thank you so much for requesting this film. Uh, neither of us had seen it before, but I watched several Sidney Poitier films last year when the Criterion Channel did a retrospective of his work. Uh, and I realized at that point that I hadn't seen any movies with him, and he's such a sort of major figure. So I wanted to sort of rectify that, and I watched a bunch of these films, and it was a really interesting exercise. And we will talk about that when we talk about this movie, because... What I kind of realized watching these movies was that Sidney Poitier is such a famous figure in American culture, and I feel like anyone in America above the age of maybe 25 who knows anything about like movies or pop culture at all has probably heard of Sidney Poitier, but there's a very good chance that they have not seen any of his movies. But he was a really great actor and movie star. It's just that he served a kind of like specific function in the history of American culture. Yeah. And like, just to clarify for the listeners who maybe have not heard of Sidney Poitier, because there are probably a couple in there. I mean, he wasn't like the first black movie star because there were black Oscar winners and nominees before him. And like, obviously in the earlier years of film, there were actually more non-white directors and actors working in the field. And then there was kind of a gap in the 90s and 50s and 60s, where basically the, the industry became more exclusionary. But he kind of came up in the late 50s, early 60s, kind of overlapping with the civil rights movement and became this huge movie star. He started out in theatre, but very quickly kind of caught on in films and starred in several very kind of successful and very well-known movies. So Lilies of the Field was, I think, the film he got his Oscar for, where he helps a bunch of nuns build a chapel. He also starred in The Heat of the Heat of the Night, which is a kind of mystery drama, and To Sir With Love, where he plays an inspiring teacher, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is kind of the quintessential, well-meaning, but now extremely dubious uh, civil rights era movie where he plays a highly educated black man who is dating a white woman, and it's kind of about him meeting her parents for the first time. And uh, kind of it, that movie in specifically kind of ties into his public image, which is he was sort of typecast in these roles where he's either this morally perfect or upper middle class black man whose role is kind of intended to dispel stereotypes. But obviously there was kind of a lot of controversy about that because he was pigeonholed into playing these very squeaky clean roles and also is kind of sexless, which definitely plays into his role in this movie we're going to discuss today. Yes, and... Both Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and The Heat of the Night both came out in 1967. So he was, if not the highest grossing star of that year, he was one of them. Like he was a huge, huge movie star in the period of when he was sort of like at the peak of his career. And they're all dramas. Like they're all drama dramas. Yes. And then in the 70s, he goes on to make a lot of comedies, several of which he directs himself, uh, many of them with Bill Cosby, which is great. But there's really a sort of shift in his career in the 70s, which makes sense given the sort of change 
in cinema culture in America in the 70s, where he's making a lot more films with almost exclusively or at least largely black casts, whereas in the 60s, that was definitely not the case. And again, he has this persona in the 60s and in the late 50s, too, where he's starting out of playing like the sort of like noble black man who in most of the films that I, maybe all of the films that I have seen him in, except maybe Paris Blues, where he has a pretty small role. The main point of these movies is like the soul of a white person. And he is there to try to like fix that person's soul in some way. Even in The Heat of the Night, which I think is definitely the best film of his that I have seen, I think has generally aged pretty well. Um, it's dated in certain ways, but like I think it's a pretty great movie and I would definitely recommend it. He doesn't go through as much change as like the racist white police chief in the yeah. southern town where the film takes place. That movie is pretty unstinting in depicting the like white racism of the people in that town and compared to many films made by Hollywood today, is like, we still have these problems in media. But nevertheless, it's still kind of recreating these patterns. But I think what's interesting about him is that he was kind of pigeonholed into these roles, and yet was such a great actor that you still feel like you're watching a really sort of magnetic figure on screen. And that even when the movies might be frustrating, like it doesn't feel necessarily like demeaning toward him in some way, because like, he is so good. I mean, I feel like even if you have little to no knowledge of this context that we've just given, I feel like instinctively a lot of viewers might even just be able to tell that just from watching the movie, because like <laughs> his performances are so strong and like you can kind of tell when you're watching any movie when there's like a really great actor who's stuck in a mediocre role you can kind of you can just tell yeah but i think this movie is really interesting i didn't particularly like it i will you know confess up front but i think it's pretty fascinating in the context of where American cinema was in 1965 and this sense of the industry kind of being on the cusp of completely changing in 1967. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of looking up, like when we were looking into the background of this movie, I was kind of looking up what movies were coming out around this time. Obviously there were a lot of civil rights movies coming around out at this time. Crucially, all of the filmmakers were white as opposed to, you know, you look at the 1920s, 30s and 40s, there are some black filmmakers working like Oscar Michaud. But um, like an example of a movie I found that just like had me reeling was a drama called Black Like Me. Uh, it's about a white journalist who disguises himself as an African-American man for six weeks in the Deep South to report on segregation. And this was like a film that was just released as like, that's a normal film that you can do, which is wild to me. But then like Morgan said, in like 1967, things change very rapidly. And I was just checking to see when Melvin Van Peebles' first film was, because he was like one of the first kind of big name black exploitation filmmakers. His first film was literally 1968. It was kind of more of an art film than like a sort of comedic action black exploitation film. But um, literally that was the moment. And then after that, in the 70s, you have like a lot more films with all black casts, either with black or white directors. Yeah, I mean, the entire industry just radically shifts in the late 60s in terms of who is making movies 
Obviously, you're still not getting that many female directors, but there are at least a couple. Um, Elaine May starts making movies in the 70s, who we discussed on an episode last year. But the content of the films in this period, like, completely, completely shifts. The, like, violent New York movies that Scorsese is making in the 70s uh, would not have been possible <laughs> in the 1960s. Obviously, the exploitation movies. But just, like... I think it's I think the 60s are really interesting, the early 60s, because I don't love the movies from this period and I'm definitely not an expert on them, but I feel like you can feel the sort of like tension in the movies as the people making them kind of like want to be doing more but can't quite get there yet. And part of what's going on in this period is that like the blacklist is mostly over by this point, but that obviously decimated Hollywood for decades. And many of the most talented people in Hollywood were blacklisted and so were not allowed to work. But it also, it just like creatively stymied the industry in general because people were afraid. So the 60s, it's after that period and the Hays Code is obviously over by this point too. So like you can show an abusive family like in this movie you can have a movie that's about social issues like racism, which was not permitted during the Hays Code period. But like they, there's still this sense of like, but we can't really go that far, right? Like, whereas not that like everything was hunky dory in the seventies and everything was perfect, but it just changes a lot. So I feel like these issue movies in the sixties, which was like a very popular genre at that time, like you get the sense of the desire to engage with like serious problems in society in a real way. And also they made money. Oh, Sydney yeah. Poitier was a success because people were fucking paying to see these movies like all over America. Huge. Well, like, this film, A Patch of Blue, which I actually hadn't heard of compared to his other kind of more famous movies like Guess Who's Coming to the Dinner. It was like his most lucrative film. So, <laughs> and it's a black and white drama about people being miserable. I mean, the 60s were an era of great unrest in America. Yeah, everyone was going through it. <laughs> yeah, but there's also like a desire in these movies to sort of solve everything, right? Like everything has to be kind of resolved by the end, which you do not get in the same way in the movies in the next decade. There were points in this film, like we're going to talk about it, but there were points in this film where like things were going so well for Sidney Poitier's character that I was just like, what is going on? Like, not in the sense that it's like, oh, I want him to suffer. It's more just like, they're kind of trying to do this movie that's about race relations while, like, ignoring racism, which is, of course, still happening now and is a, a ever-popular element of bad Hollywood filmmaking. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like, obviously the movie is not taking place in the South because yeah. <laughs> clearly this is not a Jim Crow setting. But there are a number of points in the movie where, like, He's interacting with this blind white girl who for the for most of the movie does not know that he is black. And he's doing things with her in public where I was like there's no way. Like uh, yeah, I kept just getting really stressed because I was worried like a white passerby was going to like call the police on him or something for just like hanging out with this white girl. And the movie like there are a couple of moments in the film where, like, he'll kind of, like, someone will look at them askance and he'll kind of 
look stressed or something. But for the most... So, like, it's not that the movie is existing in this space of, like, utopia where racism doesn't exist. Yeah. But it's existing in an environment that definitely is fantastical in certain ways. And it's also doing that kind of classic thing you get now, which is, like, the only people who are expressing racist opinions are, like, despicable evil supervillains rather than just, like, average white people. Yes. So the blind girl... Selena. Yes. She has this family who is just, I mean, obviously there are monstrous, abusive, you know, parents out there, for sure. But they are so, I mean, the mother in particular, the grandfather, her grandfather's just kind of a drunk and a fuck up, but her mother is is a complete caricature of a monster. I mean, also it's very kind of, like, so obviously there were people living in urban poverty in tenements in the 1960s in many countries. So I'm not saying this is like an inauthentic portrayal of real life. But the writer-director Guy Green is an Englishman who directed this film at the age of 50 and is doing this kind of portrayal of like working class, like tragic American tenement life that kind of already felt dated and very much like he'd just seen some plays <laughs> you know i kind of got that vibe <laughs> it definitely feels like a play the stuff with her family and it felt to me like they were beefing up the like horror of her life and the evilness of the sort of like white trash family i use that term deliberately because that is the what they are trying to evoke in this movie right in order to create a contrast with Sidney Poitier, who is a middle-class black man who has a nice apartment and is, like, a good person, right? Like, it definitely feels to me like they're like, see, white people can be bad. (laughs) They can be, they can do terrible things. Whereas, look at this nice black man who is nice to this girl, which feels, you know, a little bit iffy. It also, I mean, everything to do with the disability stuff in this film is really I mean just... this this movie is absolutely tragedy porn like it is all about how awful her life is and then she's like rescued by this perfect man who's wonderful and helps her with everything I kind of had mixed feelings on that right because I was kind of watching it I was like this is a subgenre which has been widely criticized by disabled critics um, for a good reason, because these films are still fucking getting made. In some ways, this is like almost slightly less offensive than some of the newer films I've seen in this kind of general vein. Um, but one thing I did think is like, I was trying to imagine like 1960s audiences watching this. And I think in some ways, it's probably quite educational to people who just have no conception of the idea of disability access. Because like the the whole film basically is about how this girl, due to her abusive upbringing, has basically spent her entire life in this apartment. She hardly ever goes out. She has never been allowed to go to school, so she's illiterate. And she's been she's working full-time uh, doing piecework from home. Like, they, they kind of researched this. They were looking into, like, what do you do if you're working class and blind that you can work from home? And, like, one of the things that you would learn in Skills for the Blind is, you know, things like threading beads or, like, other work that you can do from your hands in your house. So she's, like, making cheap jewellery and then her evil mother is taking all the money so like you do kind of get this at least nominally researched kind of view of both what kind of job she might be doing 
how she'd fall through the cracks, the ways in which her daily life are really difficult, but then also the ways in which she could be much more independent if she just had like a basic education, which is very much in keeping with the whole like issue movie concept. But I did think there probably would have been a lot of audiences watching this being like, oh, I didn't know that. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, there were things about that character in the movie that I definitely found like trying watching this in 2021. But I don't think that it's particularly sort of interesting or productive to be like, this movie is offensive because it was made in 1965. So I would say on the more critical side, like that character is infantilized to an extreme degree. Yeah, there's a lot of weird vibes in this film because she's simultaneously the romantic lead and also like very childish. Yeah, which is not necessarily like enjoyable to watch is from a like intellectual and critical point of view really interesting because that is a trope that still comes up and obviously that trope has a, like predates this movie like the idea of a disabled person being sort of presented in like a helpless childlike way but it's interesting to see it deployed in a movie from many decades ago in a it's sort of like the beginning of like the modern critical or the modern American cinema in a way, right? Because this movie, while not talked about much now, was obviously influential in certain ways because everybody saw it when it came out. So I would be curious to know, to, to sort of like read an academic study of of that and sort of how that then gets passed down, right? Through movies that come after. And on the other hand, there are definitely moments in the movie where I think they handle her blindness pretty sensitively and the parts where she tries to leave her apartment by herself and can't really handle it I thought were quite effectively depicted so like she tries to cross the street and is like really overwhelmed by the all the other people on the sidewalk and has to ask multiple multiple people for help and gets kind of swept up on the sort of like sidewalk crossings and that to me, I was like, oh yeah, that would be really scary if you didn't know sort of what you were doing fully and obviously couldn't see. Before the sort of Disability Rights Act was passed, obviously there were plenty of people living in situations like this. And I'm sure there are some now too, but like it was like widely common before, you know, law was passed late 70s, early 80s, maybe late 80s. I'm not, I can't remember the exact timeline. But like, the situation with uh, for disabled people in America now is obviously still incredibly difficult. But like, before that legislation was passed, there was just like no regulation at all, right? So it's not that you can't tell a story like this in a way that's sort of like truthful and interesting, because people's families would sort of keep them at home and infantilize them. It's just that the film doesn't quite know how to do that without giving her enough agency, right? Like, they give too much to him, and the sexuality aspect becomes just very weird. <laughs> and, and the, as you say, the vibes are strange. But that's also part of what's interesting about the movie, because... He's always depicted, almost always, as this, like, sexless figure. And this kind of, like, walks up to that line and doesn't quite cross it. 
but kind of stands on it. It like stands on the line. Yeah. From a kind of romantic narrative perspective, there's like so many clashing elements in this film, right? Because the main character, as you said, very infantilized and very vulnerable. And these two characters meet when she is taken out to the park by a neighbor, which is like one of her few kind of moments of freedom from her horrible relatives and her house. And she meets Sidney Poitier there. He works nights at his office. So like he has, a, he can come spend some time at the park and they kind of gradually strike up a friendship and he's really kind. One thing that I found kind of interesting about his performance there, which I was kind of wondering if that was a choice that he'd made or if that was something the director had told him to do. I was like, I bet this is Sydney. Is like kind of tying into what we were saying earlier about us feeling a bit anxious about how white passersby might respond to him. He is always like, has his body language is always extremely kind of, cautious around her so like as soon as he appears on screen he immediately is this really charismatic screen presence who is far more compelling than she is but also like he's really careful of her personal space he will like speak to her and then like take several steps back and stuff so it's like you immediately get this idea of him as this very kind of respectful and careful person and their kind of relationship moves along as he kind of realizes how difficult her life is and does small things that can kind of help her open up her world so like he takes her along the street for the first time he shows her how to use a use a a payphone he takes her to his apartment and you can absolutely see why she develop a crush on him right because she he's like the first person who's ever been nice to her and he's wonderful but like there's no kind of reciprocal build up there like <laughs> the film does not convincingly first of all it's like this guy is a true angel because he's like dedicating all this time to this stranger but like some people are like that so okay but like it's just not really first of all you don't really get the idea that he's attracted to her and also it doesn't really feel plausible because she is portrayed as so childlike and he kind of seems like he's about 10 years older than her but also the film doesn't kind of tell as much about the rest of his life because the only other person from his life that we meet is his brother who he lives with. Who's this sort of contrasting figure who's a bit like, why are you hanging out with this white girl? Like, should you be helping someone else? White people don't need her help. And then, you know, Sydney's like, I don't want to get into politics, kind of showing that like his brother is a bit more radical and he's like this more of a mainstream figure who's accessible to the white viewers. But I was just kind of watching it being like, wouldn't he have like a bunch of friends? <laughs> like, wouldn't he have like a big social life? Because he's this really lovely guy who's easy to get along with. Well, he works at night. So I suppose... Yeah, he works nights. So he doesn't have any friends or girlfriends. <laughs> he doesn't He doesn't have any black friends, which is like a problem we still see now. <laughs> so... I mean, I felt that even the inclusion of his brother was kind of notable. When he showed up, I was actually surprised because I was expecting yeah. him to continue being this sort of like angelic figure with no personal life. And I thought that the... They don't get into a detailed argument about politics, needless to say. But even the fact that the brother is clearly more politically radical yeah. than he was pretty interesting to me. Though, as you say, it makes Sidney Poitier the safer character for white audiences. But the fact that they're showing two Black characters who have different politics, even alluding to that fact, I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of new. Because in most of the other films of his that I've seen, that would not happen. Paris Blues, the Paul Newman one, there definitely is this like discussion of sort of political racial issues, but it's not the central you know point of that movie. And then in most of the other ones that I've seen, that there are just no other black characters, period. Or if there are, they're really peripheral. 
there's a re- he did a really interesting movie in 62, I think, called Pressure Point, where he plays a psychologist who's treating a young white nationalist, which I highly recommend. Wow. Also, which doctor sent that white nationalist to the black psychiatrist? <laughs> I mean, I think, well, he it literally, they're like, you should treat him because it, it's like a challenge. He, or he, I think he literally, I think he says something like, I can't do this because... I basically hate this guy too much and like that's not helpful and they're like yeah I just looked up this movie's po- this movie and the poster that came up is highly amusing because like clearly the film is about a psychiatrist talking to his patient but the poster is like these two men who look like they're about to be involved in like a boxing match with, like their muscles straining so it's like yeah. kudos to the poster person who's like come see this movie about professional boxers Cindy Poitier and Bobby Darren <laughs> yes but uh he was fascinated by psychoanalysis in real life apparently and went five times a week which is amazing wow (laughs) um but uh it's it's really really interesting and it's like again he's engaged with a white person but the movie makes no effort to be like but this white guy is just tortured and it's sad like no he's a nazi and he sucks but uh this film is a little bit more of a sort of compromise situation. And Poitier himself, apparently, according to um, Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, which is about the sort of birth of New Hollywood, which I have not read. I bought it recently and I haven't read it yet, but I was looking up, see if I could find stuff about this film in it. And I did find some some interesting details. That is where the psychoanalysis trivia, trivia bit that I just dumped comes from. I wonder if that emerged from his formative years in the army where he kind of think he was in the military and he got out of it partway through by faking mental illness and then working in like a psychiatric unit. I was not aware of that. And that's amazing. So apparently after Lilies of the Fields, which was the Oscar win in 63 or 64, he was not deluged with job offers as, you know, theoretically you would hope after someone wins an Oscar. And he wound up involved with, with a lot of this sort of civil rights activism. The book says, in New York, he appeared at an NAACP benefit to honor the 10th anniversary of the desegregation of schools. He went to Washington to lobby for the Landmark Civil Rights Act. He was friends with Harry Belafonte, and who was also obviously a great activist and um, was sort of inspired by him. He went down to Mississippi just three days after the murder of three civil rights workers to meet with Stokely Carmichael and members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So he's really getting involved with that and finally goes back to work, um, although he's kind of disillusioned with Hollywood, and winds up doing uh, A Patch of Blue, which (laughs) apparently he hated, which... I find a bit funny. Let's see. Where's the quote? He had little interest in his saintly restrained character who again kept his serenity and temper in face of racist abuse and was not allowed to manifest more than a hint of sexual appetite or energy. By the time Poitier finished the movie, he said, I was at my wits end. And uh, he thought the film had very little relation to objective reality. So he was not a big fan of A Patch of Blue, it would appear. But... It wound up making him a ton of money because he, uh, Mark Harris writes, he agreed to a substantial salary cut, taking just $80,000 in exchange for 10% of the gross to star in the movie. And the movie made $6.8 million, <laughs> which in 1965 
was a lot of money. But the other thing that we should say about the release of the film, which is pretty interesting and awful, is that... So I'll just read this bit from the book. In promoting the movie, MGM followed the lilies, the lilies of the Field playbook to the letter, selling the film as a parable of racial understanding in the press while soft-pedaling anything that could offend Southern theater owners or audiences. Print advertisements for the film showed Hartman, um, who plays the blind girl, swinging gaily around the trunk of a tree with a tiny headshot of Poitier placed as far away from her as possible. And MGM's endorsement of racial understanding proved to be somewhat flexible. The studio willingly cut eight seconds from all prints of a patch of blue that showed in the South, excising what would have been the first time a black man kissed a white woman in a major Hollywood film. And there was an article in the New York Times that I found about the censorship of the film in the South, which was something that film studios did regularly at this time. It was, they were basically two markets in America throughout the Jim Crow period, as you can imagine. But um, they were pretty bald faced about it. Uh, there's a quote in this article. It says, one film executive interprets white Southern reaction to the film as meeting he that is Mr. Poitier, should be noble, as he is in the film, to make up for the fact that he's a Negro. <laughs> uh, uh, so shocking that Sidney Poitier was not just thrilled by this whole situation that he found himself in with this movie. And this kind of led to his involvement within the heat of the night a couple of years later, which he was involved in developing from the sort of acquisition of the book apparently. And he plays a much more active and sort of angry character, I would say, in that movie. Definitely. It's, there's, again, there's still some problems with that film, but certainly compared to his character in this movie, who basically just exists to, like, be a magical Negro figure to this white girl. Yeah. And I think finally, just to, to go into your other area of expertise, the Oscars, what do you think of this film's five Oscar nominations, including the win for The Abusive Mother. Because when I watched the film, I was like, why did why did she win? <laughs> was she already like a famous... Shelley Winters. So she was like a very prolific actress who had already won an Oscar because she appeared in The Diary of Anne, Anne Frank. Obviously not as Anne Frank because she was middle-aged by that point, but like she was in many a film. And she was in A Place in the Sun also, and Night of the Hunter. I mean, I don't think she's bad in the movie exactly. No. I just think that the part is sort of... Corny. Unpleasant, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely, like... She's got this friend who's really awful to Selena, the daughter... Who we should say, have we said she's played by Elizabeth Hartman yet? I'm not sure we have. Oh, yeah, this is like the breakout role for this actress. Yes. Who is quite awkward in this movie, I think. Uh, we should say also not a blind actress, uh, obviously. I mean, it goes without saying, frankly, in 1965. I just checked out the Oscar field for this year. And uh, this was the year The Sound of Music came out. So this is the year Julie Andrews did not win an Oscar for The Sound of Music. And Shelley, Shelley Winters, as supporting actress, was up against uh, Maggie Smith in Othello. So this performance was better than Maggie Smith in Othello, I guess. <laughs> this, this was another thing that Mark Harris brings up in the book, is that this film comes out the same year as 
Laurence Olivier playing Othello in blackface. Yeah. Which also nomination not for an well Oscar. Received. <laughs> I mean, this movie was got very mixed reviews. Yeah. I mean, that's also what we should say is while we are like all through this episode, we're like, wow, that's so dated. We also would not like to give the impression that critics were not aware at the time this was bad. Because obviously there were people who were watching these films at the time and were making exactly the same criticisms, often from personal experience. And clearly Sidney Poitier did not think much of it, and he was in the film. I had a hard time finding reviews online. I mean, I'm sure there are some that are archived somewhere, but there's not much that's readily available via Google. Joan Didion reviewed this for Vogue. And I couldn't access it because I'm not subscribed to Vogue, no. which was very painful. <laughs> but um, again, Mark Harris sort of collects some choice quotes. He says, A patch of blue turned Poitier into a first-tier national movie star. Despite Variety's concern that the film would have possible limited appeal in Dixie, the movie was his first to do big business in cities like Atlanta, Houston, and Charlotte, playing well in both black and white neighborhoods. Um, again, not necessarily an endorsement of this film that it did so well in White neighborhoods of the South. Um, most critics felt the mawkish material was elevated by the performances and shared Judith Christ's, I don't know who that is, conviction that the movie showed Poitier at the peak of his abilities, the embodiment of a man secure within himself. But many also expressed impatience with seeing the actor forced into one more turn-the-other-cheek characterization. White liberals were especially eager to take on the mantle of black rage. The caricature of the Negro as a Madison Avenue sort of Christian saint, selfless and well-groomed, is becoming a movie cliche nearly as tiresome and, at bottom, nearly as patronizing as the cretinous figure that Stephen Fetchett used to play, wrote Brendan Gill in The New Yorker. Negroes must find it extremely irritating. The implicit moral is that affection between a Negro man and a white girl is all right, so long as the girl is blind, ignorant, underdeveloped, and 18 years old, complained the reviews for film, the reviewers for Film Quarterly. We have got somewhere when she's a bright 25-year-old who knows what she's doing. Yikes. I mean, that's kind of what happens in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? Where he plays this, like, un- like basically a caricature of a perfect man. He's a doctor. I mean, that movie is fascinating. I genuinely would recommend it to people, not in the sense that it's like a great work of cinema, but purely as like a historical document. Poitier plays, again, the perfect man. And he's fallen in love with this young, beautiful white woman whose parents are um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. And she's younger than him, but she's like very vivacious and smart and cultured and comes from these like very smart and cultured people. But the way the movie is set up, it's completely a thought experiment and very explicitly agitprop. It's not attempting to be a film as a film, right? Like it is attempting to make an argument to white people about race relations. And I remember watching it and like for the first half, I actually was like, you know what? This is actually fine. Like, it's not great, but like, you know, watchable Catherine Hepburn obviously always good you can always watch Catherine Hepburn she's fun and then in the second half it literally is like you're watching aliens like (laughs) you're just like what the fuck is happening you know Spencer Tracy is playing a sort of like you know white liberal guy who's uncomfortable that his daughter has brought home a black man and the movie ends with him giving a lecture to like his other white friends about why racism is bad and you're just like what is going on like I don't understand which i feel like shows the limitations of hollywood at this time right because theoretically that comment about 
the sort of romance in quotes in this movie is correct. But then the imagination to be like, just set him up with a like smart, vivacious white girl. Like when they actually do that, it doesn't work either. Right? Like they, it just doesn't compute for the people making these movies. They can't do it. But there is like, there's a moment in the film where his brother is like, what are you doing with this white girl? Like, why do you have her over in the house? And he's just like, Oh no, she's blind. Like, it's like that's the explanation for why this can't possibly be sexual or romantic, right? And I was just like, oh no. <laughs> I could sort of watching it, I kept sort of thinking like I could see like the good movie inside of this movie, which is always an interesting feeling. Yeah, I agree. I mean, once again, I love the wide range of movies that our audience is recommending to us. Because like so many episodes before, I got to watch a film I'd never heard of before. And it was really interesting to discuss. So uh, thank you, Asante, for uh, recommending this to us and requesting it on Patreon. Yes. Despite, you know, my reservations about certain things about this movie, I genuinely found it really interesting to watch. And um, I find Poitiers really interesting. We love to discuss a Hollywood icon. Yeah. And I mean, we were saying before we started recording like this sort of conundrum about him that's both interesting and kind of sad is that you watch him in a movie and you immediately get it right like he's so electric he's so charismatic obviously a great actor and i don't have the sense that people really i mean i i said at the beginning i don't get the sense that people really watch his movies anymore because to me, they're kind of more interesting as, like, historical documents than as films. But obviously someone, like, there had to be some kind of transitional figure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, it's quite rare to see a movie a movie star, like, of that stature who did not do, like, a couple of really iconic fun movies. <laughs> you know, like, blockbusters or, like, genre films. And that kind of often, like, plays into people's success and like he clearly was not getting offered you know the rom-com leads and the james bonds and you know cleopatra or whatever well i think stardom was different back before the blockbuster era yeah i mean this is all pre-jaws and star wars Mm -hmm. right but someone like paul newman who kind of emerges at the similar time did something did like westerns the movies are just They've just aged better as films, right? Whereas Poitiers gets bogged down doing all these, like, race issue pictures. Mm -hmm. Which obviously were really socially important at the time. But you're not gonna, like, you know, sit back on a Friday night and throw on a patch of blue in the same way that you might Butch Cassidy, right? Like, it's just not... It's not... It's not the same thing. Again, in the 70s, he goes on to do like a lot of different kinds of things, including Westerns and comedy films and whatever. But I think those are not like super highly regarded as like cinema, Um, although they were quite popular at the time um, and I haven't seen them. So I can't, you know, pass judgment. Um, Also, a bunch of them star Bill Cosby. So that's, again, a bit of a problem now. So, um... But uh, he's still alive, we should also say. Man's 93, still kicking. 
which is pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, definitely I recommend In the Heat of the Night. The Defiant Ones, which was his big breakout in 1958 with Tony Curtis, is for sure dated, but I think is worth watching. It's pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, thanks again to Asante for picking this movie. Um, and next week, we're going to do another listener request. We have many. And uh, the next one is the 1993 animated film, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, I have not seen this, needless to say. Regular listeners will be shocked to hear that I have not seen this. But uh, I am looking forward to watching a Batman cartoon. That seems like something that will be fun to watch this week. I need something that is light and entertaining. So that will be will be good. And then for our 200th episode, the week after, which is a wild number of episodes that we have somehow gotten to, uh, we will be watching and posting a commentary track for on Patreon. James Cameron's Titanic. Oh my goodness, Morgan. It's Titanic time! (laughs) Yes. I believe that is also the week of my birthday, so it's really just a celebration on many fronts. (laughs) Um, I've never seen Titanic. And uh, can't wait to watch it for the first time on my laptop screen so that we can record our our commentary (laughs) track. It's going to be great. We're very, very excited. So Batman and then Titanic. What a double dip of culture. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And Gabby, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at HelloTaylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.